Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Today on the CVU School Counselor Podcast, we talk with Fern Aguda-Brown and Jess Hoskins about ESTs, 504s, and IEPs, and how they fall into or how they make up the MTSS or multi-tiered support system um, for students here at CVU. And one of the documents that we work from, I will link in the show notes, but that document is um, from Champlain College and it is titled The Differences Between High School and College for Students with Disabilities. As I said, I will link the document in the show notes, but it does speak to all of the applicable laws for students uh, and families. It speaks to uh, the roles that different parties have in the process. It's a really informative document. So not only did we talk about this document and how it applies to our students once they leave CVU, but we also talked about the systems of support that are in place for students currently in our building and how students and families might begin to access those supports. And again, as I said in the beginning, how those supports work within our MTSS system or the MTSS system that the district um, supports. I know Susie and I learned a lot from this conversation and look forward to speaking with Jess and Fern again should folks listening have questions about how all of this comes together for all students. Coming up in the future, uh, as many families know, we administered the PSAT here at CVU back in October. Those results are coming out and being distributed to students by College Board. Uh, Rye Hoffman, the director of, um, the lead counselor with the Direction Center here, Susie and myself will be sitting down talking about how to interpret those PSAT results as well as the plan results that are also being mailed home. Um, and we are also in the process of interviewing several college representatives uh, to talk to us about how schools use those standardized test results and to discuss how families and students might decide if it is necessary or important for them to include standardized tests as part of their application. Susie and I thank everyone for listening. These are fun shows to put together. We hope that they are fun and informative for you all. If you have topics or ideas for things that you would like to see us uh, produce, please let us know. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week. So we're excited today. We are going to talk about student support services. I think it's a really important topic. I think there's a lot of great information here. And we have two CVU guests. I'm going to let them introduce themselves, and then we'll dive right in. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Jess Hoskins. I am the Director of Special Services here at CVU. And my name is Fern Aguda-Brown, and I am the EST Coordinator at CVU. If I wasn't so afraid of pronouncing it wrong, that's exactly how I would have pronounced it. <laughs> and, you know, I hear EST. This is a good start. You know, we are acronym happy in, um, in schools and in education, and sometimes those acronyms can throw people off because they don't know what they mean. Mm -hmm. So can we start talking a little bit about, you know, what the acronyms are, what, you know, what the programs are, and, and then we can get into sort of how students access. So what are the acronyms? We have EST, we have yep. IEP, we have 504, 504. 
Uh, MTSS, response to intervention, um, those are probably the main ones that okay. to start with. Yep. So who wants to start? Jess, do you want to give an overview of sort of MTSS and then where sure. MST falls? So we are in a system in our district, well, in the state really, that is focused on a structure called MTSS, which stands for Multi-Tiered uh, Support System. The uh, the base, basic idea is that all students access universal best instruction, first instruction, um, in the classroom, K-12, pre-K-12. Um, and then the, the professionals in those classrooms, classroom teachers, are the first, um, are the, really the first interventionists. They're, they're um, designing uh, instructional activities and assessments, and they're the people who are the first people to notice when a student isn't understanding or a student is not making progress. And teachers in their daily practice reflexively intervene, often probably without even thinking about it. They notice that a student like didn't understand that question. They rephrase a question. They notice that a student um, missed this section on that assessment that um, indicates a misunderstanding with this particular topic and they, and they pull that student in for a reteach and then reassess. And all of that happens day to day um, in the moment with students. And that, it, that's tier one in this system. It's that first instruction that students are getting from a classroom teacher. There, is, there are a set of students that need more than that, and that's where the support services system comes into play. So um, at, we're gonna focus on the high school. Um, that's my area of expertise and Fern's area of expertise. So at the high school, what happens, um, we, ha we have multiple systems where, where teams are talking about students. So in our ninth grade core, we have the core teams, five general educators and a special educator and the core director and the, um, the guidance counselor. And those teams meet weekly to talk about students. And that, um, that structure is common with K-8, and that's called Kid Talk. And that's where a teacher will say, I'm noticing this student is having this problem in my class. Are other people seeing it and, and getting a, a circular view of the student and problem solving can happen there and sometimes that that professional um, teaming is is enough to to unstick the student from wherever they're encountering a difficulty um, if that is not enough then the next layer of intervention we have is called est that's the first acronym here it stands for educational support team and that's a, a smaller team that includes the special educator from the at CVU it includes the special educator from the core program, a general educator, the house director, the guidance counselor, and our school psychologist, and then other um, other professionals. Um, maybe there's a mental health person that's pulled in if the student being discussed um, gets services from the mental health team. Um, the school nurse may be involved if there's a medical concern. So that team is called the educational support team and that um, that is a general education um, requirement. The state, all, all schools are, are supposed to have an EST structure. Um, and I guess I'm gonna, I'll pause from getting into the specifics of EST mm -hmm. and the plans, because Fern, you can step in and talk about that yeah. a little bit. But um, I don't, so in my position as the director of special ed, I don't oversee EST. Um, but I interface closely with it because referrals for 
either 504 or, or special education often come out of EST, especially at the high school. Um, the K-8s have this system in place and have identified along the way many students who require specialized support before they, they get to us. But then there are a small number of students who are initially identified in ninth grade. Um, so we want to have Fern talk briefly yeah. about what in what that how that EST plan works. Sure. Before we jump into some of the next tier. Yep. Sure. So EST plans, so educational support team plans. Um, So a referral can come from a teacher. It can come from a student, a family, a school counselor. Sometimes it's a combination of those. Um, And so often there is a concern around um, a challenge with the student in class if they're not understanding or if there's a pattern of not understanding certain concepts. Um, It could come from... Um, potentially seeing if a student is um, sort of socially disconnected or experiencing challenges socially as well. Um, And so what the referral comes in and then I work to collect data. um, And so data is collected by reaching out to the family, by meeting with the student, reaching out to teachers to get teacher feedback, um, as well as hearing from the school counselor and any other folks that are um, work with the student in the building. Um, And so once I gather that information, um, presenting that to the EST team, and then we make a decision around whether to move forward with an EST plan. Um, And if that feels appropriate um, for as appropriate interventions and level of need for the student, then we put an EST plan in place with input from the student and family. Um, And then once the student's on an EST plan, there's monitoring and so keeping Um, in touch with the student around um, grades as well as if there's teacher feedback around any concerns that may arise Um, and keeping in touch with the student around if the accommodations and interventions are helpful, not helpful, um, if they continue to be relevant. The great thing about EST is that it's really flexible and we can make changes um, based on student needs and so if those change we could discontinue certain accommodations or interventions and and try other things. Um, And data is a big piece of that and really collecting and monitoring and seeing if the ESC, the current accommodations are supportive or not. Um, So that's... I think it's important important to note that the EST is really rather fluid so that as you find something working or something not working, um, or you get input from a teacher, like we can go back and say, you know what, extra time on an assignment didn't make sense, mm-hmm. but, or on assignments didn't make sense, but uh, a note card in a test mm-hmm. that, a, that is teacher approved might replace extended time because now you're kind of providing some accommodations, some support, but doing it in a way that is agreed upon by, by parties. And now you've got kids who are perhaps not feeling overwhelmed by this continuing pile of work because they have extended time, they're feeling like they can be successful in the moment. So we can create a lot of really fluid accommodations Mm -hmm. on an EST. For a question for you, I am a student Mm -hmm. and I want an EST. Mm -hmm. Do I automatically get one? No, so there is a process that we go through and so part of that would be really having a conversation with you as the student in terms of what's going well and what's really challenging. 
Um, and then so that would be your input into the process and then speaking with family members to hear from them um, and then hearing back from teachers as well to see what they're observing in the classroom and what your habits of learning and your jump rope data is providing as well. And so really my role as EST coordinator, part of that is really looking, trying to see a student um, in sort of a full picture, getting feedback from lots of different sources. Um, so that we can see if, if an EST feels appropriate. Um, and if an EST, if the accommodations of an EST don't feel appropriate, um, still being able to offer some suggestions either through the school counselor or different, um, still I think wanting to really work with students, especially if, if students are identifying a need and, and self-advocating like that, I think it's really important to recognize that. Um, and if an EST doesn't feel appropriate in that moment, communicating that to the student and family and, and offering some other alternatives about resources in the school that they can access. And I guess I would add that, you know, the way that you are determining, teams are determining that um, if an EST is appropriate is the, the question that the team is asking is what interventions can general education provide the student to support a clearly identified concern, mm -hmm. right? So a clearly identified concern might be something like, um, experience significant anxiety uh, navigating the social situation in this particular part of the school or um, with math in particular struggle to finish an assessment in the time period of the class or um, is not um, teachers are seeing the student is really having a hard time understanding the parts of a paragraph and how they go together and how to pull evidence from a text. So what interventions can general educators provide that would support the student's progress on that, on that identified area of concern? Mm -hmm. And so we've got an EST, we've collected data, yep. it's working, mm -hmm. what next? Well, if it's working, then we should be feeling pretty good about that. Um, the, that was a softball. Yeah, yeah. thank you. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the goal is, so here's, a, here's another jargony term, least restrictive environment uh, is, a, is a term in special education um, where, we're, where schools are obligated to educate students in the least restrictive environment possible. And that, the law is very clear, is the general education environment. That is what the least restrictive environment is. Um, so, so our default has to be how do we, how do we keep kids as close to that as possible? As close to tier yeah. one. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. 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 But if it's not working, which is, I assume, your follow-up question. Yeah. That was going to yeah. be the follow-up yeah. question. Yeah. So then, so then uh, it kicks into my arena, and I oversee five hundred four, and special education. So um, this is perhaps a little known fact. Five hundred four is actually also general education. Um, it, the 504 coordinator, according to the law, is the principal or the principal's designee. And in our in our district, the special ed director is the designee. So we oversee in all the buildings in our district. The special ed director oversees 504. Fun fact. Yeah. Um, and an important distinction between the two of them is that the law that governs 504, the laws that govern 504 and IEP are different. So 504 comes from the Americans with Disabilities Act in the 70s, and it is a civil rights law. And the, the requirements under Section 504 of the Americans with Disabilities Act is that any institution, schools, workplaces, etc., that receive federal money are obligated to remove barriers to access. 
so the question that we're asking with 504 is, first of all, does the student, since we're in education, we're talking about students, does the student have a disability? So a diagnosed disability, anxiety, a learning disability, autism spectrum disorder, any of uh, any of the myriad medical diagnoses that you might have, um, medical um, things that we see often in 504 are, um, are diabetes or chronic migraines, things like that. So is there a disability that is causing a substantial impact on the student's ability to access a major life activity? And in our case, this is learning. So we are an educational institution. So when I'm looking or I'm sitting on a evaluation team for Section 504, that's the question I'm asking first. Is there a disability? Either we have a diagnosis from somewhere or we suspect one and the school um, will be doing some work to determine there's disability. And then substantial impact. So that bar um, it is not clearly defined black and white in the law the way that the, the evaluation questions for IEPs are. Um, so assessing substantial impact is um, professional judgment on, on the part of the 504 eval team. And generally what we're looking for is, is the student struggling, is struggling is not exactly the right word, is the student needing to work substantially harder than the average student to make average progress, right? So this again is, is, is difficult to really pin down in black and white because you can have a valid discussion and debate among a team about what is substantially more. Does that look different between school and home? We know that students present differently at school and home. I experienced that with my own daughter who is a different kid between school and home, right? We see a lot more um, anxiety and difficulty with emotional well, regulation. Well, I'm guessing also painted your nails. Uh, we did our nails together, yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> my daughter used to paint mine all the time. Um, and and I think that that often is a conversation among a team that is including parents and students and where where the school team and, and the family are seeing different things at home. It's particularly when we're talking about mental health um, or anxiety and depression that will manifest really differently at school and at home. Um, is that because we feel like or we see students holding it together and maintaining at school and then going home where it's safe and that's where we see... I would say, yeah, anecdotally, I'd say we see that often. Mm-hmm. often. We see a lot of the breakdown, the tears, mm-hmm. the I can't do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, They've held it together yeah. for eight hours and then there needs to be that, exactly. that crash. Or the reverse, if their home life is not yeah. healthy. Yeah. Sometimes you see them holding it together. Here, This is their space. Yeah. Where they can yep. Yeah, so that... That's just the first question when we're asking 504 eligibility. Is there a disability that's causing a substantial impact on the ability to access learning? If the answer to that question is yes, then we ask the question, what accommodations does a student need to remove barriers and ensure access? So that can look very, there are a ton of reasons why kids might access 504. For a student who has a medical 504, that may look like, um, you know, requirements to be able to access a phone to monitor blood glucose for diabetes, for example, would be an accommodation that would, um, would could be provided through 504. Something as simple as being able to access the locked elevator if you've got a broken leg. 
Yes. Well, so that so that that the medical five hundred four um, for something that's transient, like a, a broken leg, yep. we uh, we shouldn't need to be writing five hundred fours to allow access to an elevator for student on crutches. Um, we're we're looking at. Um, substantial impact over a, over, over a long over period time. of time right okay. so if a student ends, if, so if a student is um ha, is in a car accident is using a wheelchair for a substantial period of time mm-hmm. um following that accident that would warrant a 504 a um so it depends on the, the amount of time the amount of for time. that particular medical okay. thing but in terms of um things like you know classroom accommodations that you might see so things like um uh access to audiobooks and uh, extended time and uh, accessing assessments in another location than the classroom um, are common ones. The accommodations that are in the 504 plan should only be things that are not typically provided in the general ed setting. So for a 10th grade accessing that 10th grade skill building mm-hmm. class that we offer yep. or for mm-hmm. a junior offering that U.S. in the world learning support yes. block yep. are not offered to everybody, Correct. but may be offered to some students on 504s. Correct. Now, Jess, I have a question for and, you. And not, yeah. sorry, Susie, and not students on an EST. Correct. So we've made a distinction Correct. between the two plans mm-hmm. there. Yep. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Have you seen an increase in requests for a 504 yes. over your career? Yes. And why do you think that is? Um, it's almost the increase is almost entirely attributable attributable to an increase in anxiety and depression and other mental health um, diagnoses and that makes the substantial impact question I think more difficult for us as a school team to answer um, especially when you can when the I think the average has shifted mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. if yes. we're comparing if we're trying to make this 504 determination based on average the average level of anxiety has increased in the I've worked at CVU since 2009 absolutely increased um, and then and then the other you know the other question I think we're obligated to ask this is not part of the eval but just in terms of our system is what 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 is the 504 plan going to change like how, how that second question how is this going how are these accommodations going to ensure access and that I think can be really tricky because it's some Sometimes it's as as straightforward as separate setting for assessments, um, but I think often it's more complex than that, and that's a more complex team conversation. And that's why there's a team of people that yeah. get together and mm-hmm. and create the set of accommodations, and mm-hmm. then that team of people have to come together in a little bit more formal way to change the to change the accommodations. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's EST. Mm-hmm. That's 504 in a five-minute nutshell. Yep. We're talking yep. some master's level classes and <laughs> four years of education. Yeah. We've narrowed it down to five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, what is the other, because we also have other questions. Yeah, what, sure. what is the next tier? Um, so special education um, is governed by a different law. It is governed by the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Um, it's been reauthorized a couple of times. And it is a very different evaluation process. 
there's a whole sidebar we could go down about Act 173 and the, how that's changing the uh, requiring schools to change the system by which we evaluate for learning disabilities that rests on that general ed um, and EST structure that I was talking about. I'm not sure that falls within the scope of what we're talking about Today's here. Yeah. Um, right. But we can th- come back. But next that, time. but that yeah. may be some other things that people are hearing about and wondering about how this all plays in. And there's there's more to be said about that. But. Um, so the Individuals with the Disabilities Education Act um, requires that, that families, excuse me, that schools identify students. And I know we're going to get to, I think, a question about how this, is, how this plays out differently in high school versus college. So put a pin in that, the, who's required to disclose. I'll hold my tongue. Um, so when, when evaluating for special education services, we have three questions to answer. First, does the student have a disability? There are 13 categories of disability. By far, the biggest one is specific learning disability. And that would be things like a, um, a specific learning disability in reading, in writing, in math. The, um, some terms that people might be familiar with are dysgraphia, dyscalculia, um, dyslexia. Schools do not, the way the Vermont regulate, special ed regulations are written, we don't use those more medical terms, but dyslexia is a type of learning disability in reading, and dysgraphia is a type of learning disability in writing. So the wording that we use is sort of the bigger heading specific learning disability. So close to half of IEPs are for learning disabilities. Um, The other 12 categories are the um, sort of biggest ones are other health impairment. That would be things like ADHD. Um, There is... Um, the category of emotional disturbance, which um, can encompass, that's an educational term, not a medical term, um, and we look at um, students' mental health profiles. Um, so anxiety is one that can sometimes fit between other health impairment or emotional disturbance, depending on how significant. Um, and then autism spectrum disorder, and then the other ones are, are more low incidence disabilities, global developmental delay, traumatic brain injury, etc. So first, does the student have a disability? Then does the student, is the disability having an adverse effect on academic or functional performance? Um, and the way until June 31st of 2023, the way that we evaluate that is, um, is a student in the lowest 15th percentile? Is that about six more months? Um, well, I was thinking 30 days has September, <laughs> April, June, and November. So, well, And that's the catch right there, <laughs> yeah. because I do know there, there have been students who have struggled with some of these diagnoses, yeah. whether it be yeah. dyslexia, or, dyslexia yeah. or whatever, yeah. but they've, they've accommodated themselves. Yeah. And they're still top-notch students, and yeah. they're still doing great work. Yeah. And it becomes challenging because mm-hmm. sometimes they feel like they have to work harder yeah. to get that result, but they're not showing that 15%, which yeah. is a key indicator. And here's the, here's the other key indicator. The third evaluation question for special eligibility is, does the student require specialized instruction in a basic skill area in order to make progress in the general ed curriculum? So again, we, we're obligated to educate students in the least restrictive environment. The courts clearly have said that that is the general education environment or as close as a student can reasonably maintain access to that. That's the goal. Um, So the question is, what specialized instruction does the student need to make progress in that general curriculum? So what specialized math instruction, what specialized writing instruction, what specialized reading instruction does a student need in order to make progress? Um, So we've moved beyond an audio book, which might be a 504 accommodation. And we're now moving into 
actual instruction in reading. That's a key difference between IEP and 504 service. is right. that an IEP includes an individualized education program, includes services, services yep. from a service provider and accommodations. A 504 plan, with very few exceptions, is accommodations. Accommodations. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So we've, we've gone through the MTSS. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So again, MTSS, just to sort of bring us back that picture, triangle, right? The base of the triangle is the biggest chunk. That's tier one. That's universal instruction. Tier two is, um, it's usually yellow in the triangle, like some level of concern. Um, but the the supports are not, um, the student's not requiring specially designed instruction. And then tier three is the top of the triangle. Um, and typically, the percentage-wise, we're looking at that top of the triangle, tier three, um, 12 to 15% of students would be high. So now, I don't know if this question's too broad, Susie, jump in if it, if it is, or anybody else. I'm on a plan. Can I go to college? Yes. I'm on a plan. Will it help me if I go out to employment? Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yes, yeah. sure. So, um, so there are no, no barriers. With a plan, there, are, there should be no barriers. The plan in and of itself is not a barrier. Okay. So I was a special educator. I've been a special educator um, here at CVU for a long time. And before I was in the ninth grade car, I was in the upper house working with the 10th, 11th, and 12th graders. And any student uh, that I worked with who was on an IEP who wanted to go to college was able to find a path that that worked, that worked for them. So an important thing to understand is that if your student is eligible for special education, your entitlement to special education services ends upon graduation. So when you when when your IEP team has determined that you have met all your graduation requirements and all your transition goals, transition plans are another piece of an IEP, um, then you've graduated from our system and your entitlement to those services ends. When you go to college, the supports that you can get through uh, at the college level are provided through a 504 plan, may be provided through a 504 plan. So there's some really key distinctions to understand um, about, about 504 between high school and college. So the first thing is that 504 is place-based, meaning they can and do look different in different places. You can have a 504 in the workplace. We've had faculty or, and, and staff um, who have required 504 accommodations. Um, it, the question is, is there the, the substantial impact on a major life activity? So your ability to access your employment, place of employment, yep. is a major life activity. So, so employers are, are required to comply with Section 504. Um, but again, we're talking about learning institutions. So between high school and college, um, in high school we're required to identify students. In college that is not not the case. Students would need to self-identify as as being eligible for 504 accommodations. Um, and the way that you the way that you f- figure this process out is you add it as a checkbox on your list of things that you're considering when you're looking at colleges. Is this college in a part of the country I want to go to? Does this college have the, the program that I'm interested in? And what are the disability support services like at this college? Because they can and do vary between campuses. Um, and just because you had a 504 in high school doesn't automatically mean you have one in college. And the reverse is also true. If you didn't qualify for a 504 in high school because you're 
the team didn't find evidence of substantial impact, that does not mean that you then do not qualify for 504 in college. I think that's really important um, for, for students to understand um, because it is place-based. So you bring the information that you have from high school with you to the disability services office at whatever college you're planning to attend and then they have their version of a 504 meeting to determine what accommodations are reasonable for that setting and they they may be the same or similar as to what you got in high school and they may not and all colleges are different in the programming that they provide and the things you know so similarly to how high schools you know, different experiences different high schools and people change mm -hmm. your, you know your health mm -hmm. issues might not exist in high school but you might get to college yeah. and you know I wouldn't unfortunately mm -hmm. something happens and you need to adjust yeah so we've jumped ahead to accommodations on a college campus I'm gonna mm -hmm. go back mm -hmm. and ask you both a question about standardized testing mm -hmm. so at this point in time as we're recording this, students are probably checking their email, logging into College Board, getting PSAT results, having conversations with families about should I take standardized tests. Susie and I are, are going to be interviewing various college reps to talk about how they uh, interpret standardized tests as part of the application process. And families are asking us, everybody in this room, um, if it's possible to get accommodations on standardized testing. So can we speak to that from the EST perspective mm -hmm. and the 504 IEP perspective? Mm -hmm. Like are accommodations available under kind of how do they happen and what might they be? And we'll start with Fern because you've been talking a lot, Jess. Sure, yeah, so for EST plans, if a student has an ESPT plan and an accommodation listed on the plan is extended time for testing um, and potentially another accommodation could be a separate space for testing. Um, those are just two examples of, of College Board accommodations. So the student to qualify for College Board accommodations, generally students have to be on EST plans for at least six months, four months. Um, and then my hope is that, I'm, I'm new this year, but my hope is that I will be able to be proactive in reaching out to students with accommodations like similar to those on their EST plan. Um, but, but for general students and families to know if those are accommodations on the plan, we can then apply to College Board to request um, similar accommodations. We do need to, it's, it's recommended to also provide teacher feedback as part of that process, so College Board through their process will also um, want to see the EST plan and teacher feedback if the student used the accommodation and how did they use it and if it was helpful for them. Um, I have not done this yet, um, but am anticipating doing this for at least one student coming up for SATs. Um, so if, yeah, so I guess if students and families have questions, but I hope to be reaching out as well to be a little bit more proactive in offering this as potentially we can apply, but College Board, um, it is challenging to get accommodations approved. That's um, what I was just gonna say is yeah, I think just because yeah. we put it in an EST plan right. doesn't, doesn't mean, mean that College Board is gonna say, yeah, perfect, yeah. go. Yeah. And there are a lot of rules with College Board around what is an acceptable accommodation and not. Right. One thing that I see a lot of and have seen a lot of is sometimes students are they wear 
they use headphones or earplugs to kind of silence the extraneous noise in their lives and you are not allowed any any non-approved device is not allowed in that testing environment so you can't even bring those little smooshy foam earplugs you can't even wear those during college board testing so there are some accommodations that they just kind of squash from the from the beginning so we might put it out there Mm -hmm. but it's up to college board to approve yeah and we don't have there's an appeal process that we can help families with if if a request has been denied sometimes additional documentation is enough um, for the college board to feel it's warranted to reconsider their um, judgment their judgment but uh, we can't overturn it right yeah. and so accommodations from the 504 IEP perspective are they different than what Fern outlined in terms of EST? Well, it's the same process. We have to apply apply on behalf of students for those accommodations. Uh, there is some difference between the way um, the SAT and the ACT uh, ask for that documentation. Um, and a big you know, consideration is that if you apply and are approved for those accommodations, you have to use them. And that's a big consideration, especially with extended time, because you cannot advance until that time is up. It is a long, long, long testing day for students. Yeah, if you have time and a half, that means, and the section is, you know, 90 minutes for an essay writing section, you're doing 90 minutes plus 45. Right. Now, because of where EST is on the tier system, if, if in fact you are on a 504 and IEP, and the tiers, the, mm-hmm. you know, the tier goes up. Mm-hmm. Are your chances of getting accommodation greater? Like being approved by a college yeah, board? Yeah, I would, Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And generally, students who are on a five hundred four or an IEP have been on that plan longer. Yeah. And that is another a piece of data that the college board cares much significantly about is how long have the students been provided and access these accommodations and if you have accommodations do you have to disclose and you do choose to submit test scores and there'll be several podcasts to follow about test scores and testing do you have to disclose that you took an SAT or an ACT using X accommodation not to my knowledge and um, back to the college conversation it is not Colleges cannot ask about disability status, 504 IEP eligibility status when you are applying. Some students and families choose to disclose during the application process, and some don't. Um, But it's your choice, and they they cannot um, use what if you choose to disclose, it is illegal for them to use that information in a discriminatory way. In a discriminatory way. And um, you know, I know we're going to get more into this rest with admissions, but it's often it's important to note too that. When we say testing, we also say optional. Mm-hmm. That for some people, whether they have a, a, a testing accommodation or not, they be, might be like, "I'm not doing this. This isn't this isn't how I learn best. This isn't going to help me. This isn't an environment that is conducive to me doing mm-hmm. well." So they opt out. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna I'm gonna backtrack and, and I'm realizing that we're at 36 minutes but I have four a, minutes Russ. four minutes I'm not gonna do it I'm gonna talk for four minutes knowing me um, the question on the tip of my tongue is we often receive an email from a family 
just in general, and mm-hmm. it'll say, we just went to the doctor, and the doctor has diagnosed my child with fill-in-the-blank. Mm-hmm. I have a medical note saying they um, are eligible for a, for a 504. How does that work at, at CVU? Because it's my understanding there are steps to that we should that we in terms of good teaching and good educational practices we should follow around that letter yeah so um, it depends on what the diagnosis is so a diagnosis of I think di- anxiety a diagnosis of anxiety so a diagnosis does not automatically qualify you for a 504 plan and it is the school's um, responsibility to convene a, a team to make an eligibility determination. Again, that question is, is a student's disability causing a substantial impact on their ability to access major life activity, their learning? Um, and a doctor's note and a diagnosis is one piece of information that we would use to answer that question. We would also be interested in a student's attendance. We'd be interested in students' grades. We'd be interested in the amount of time that a student is spending outside of class, both in and outside of school, to be able to to, to do the work. It's important to know that high grades do not disqualify you from a 504. That's pretty clear in the law. Um, but also clear in the law is that the, the team needs to see evidence of substantial impact and what what is that substantial impact? Is it difficulty entering the school building? Is it chronic absenteeism? Is it um, poor grades can be an indicator of substantial impact, but again, you can be eligible for 504 with high grades and what is the substantial impact? So with anxiety, we often see um, substantial impact looking like you know extreme amounts of time outside of school required um, a lot of support from the direction center to be able to process um, anxiety during the day uh, or to, to co um, big need for co-regulation to be able to yep. re-access a, 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 a learning or. space um, those are the things that for anxiety in particular we'd be looking at to say yes there is substantial impact that is beyond the the average student. So it's highly likely then we would take that letter and say, start with trying to answer some of those questions with you and the classroom Mm -hmm. teachers, and then perhaps in that EST setting, bringing that letter and saying, all right, Fern, can we get together and and come up with some, some accommodations to see if there are some things we can do in a little bit more formal way to let teachers know, hey, this is what's going on for this student. Here are some strategies to maybe help them be more successful. Is that is that an, a fair and accurate mm-hmm. statement? Yes. Yeah, and I think with... I'm not asking you to go on record, but... <laughs> yeah, and I think, yes, yeah, so when we receive a letter like that, a lot of information gathering happens, and then part of that, if an EST feels like it could offer some appropriate interventions and accommodations, then it's really monitoring, too, and if... If a need still persists and it and it's um, and sort of gathering information from teachers, if that's what the data is showing that their student is still requiring and needing that extra support, then we would do potentially a 504 referral. So the conversation is ongoing, and I think an EST plan allows us to really have that flexibility in conversation and, and also be in conversation with Jess too around, does this feel appropriate to move it 
up a level or to refer for a higher level. Um, and so hopefully having that communication with families as well is, is pretty clear that it's it's an ongoing assessment with EST. I think that's what it's able to offer as well. Yeah, and I, and I think I would really want to impress on families that you know, the, the array of supports that we have in general education, pretty impressive in our building. Right. So so sometimes it's just about like identifying that need and connecting the student with the supports. I'm getting a signal to wrap it up. So. Well, 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 <laughs> the only thing I was going to say, Jess, is it's what, by what you both said is whether it's tier one, tier two, or tier three, there are people working with students to mm -hmm. help make their learning experience better. Yes. So you don't necessarily have to be on a plan to get help. Correct. And that help can be just what you need to thrive. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's another podcast, Susie, is working with Ron and Cindy yeah. and, and the folks in the Learning Center to talk tier about. Tier one. All right. Yeah. Here are some tier one yeah. interventions yeah. That, we can, yeah. that we can provide all students, no matter plan or not. Because there's a lot, there is a lot of support.